before we get started with the show, we have a special announcement for our listeners in the Boston area. Brains On is coming to Boston for a live show. And this live show is all about robots. It's on Sunday, April 15th, and we're going to be there as part of the Cambridge Science Festival. If you want to learn more about the event and buy tickets, head to brainson.org. Hope to see you there. You're listening to Brains On, where we're serious about being curious. Brains On is supported in part by a grant from the National Science Foundation. A couple episodes ago, we talked about circadian rhythm, the near 24-hour cycle on which our bodies run. Light from the sun or other sources gives us cues to go about our day. Wake up in the morning, eat, take on complex problems, even exercise. As darkness sets in, we get cues to do things like produce more of a hormone called melatonin, which causes us to sleep. And the great conductor of our circadian rhythm? The suprachiasmatic nucleus. You can think of this group of neurons as the conductor of circadian rhythm directing bodily functions to speed up or slow down. Today, we're going to look at another side of circadian rhythm. Light, as it turns out, plays an important role to all sorts of living things. You're listening to Brains On from American Public Media. I'm Molly Bloom. And I'm Annika Rader. Annika co-hosted the first part of this special, so it only makes sense that she's back again today, where... It's all about the ticks and talks of our circadian clocks. Those clocks aren't just in humans. They're in the cells of animals everywhere. My name is Phoebe, and I live in Brooklyn. And my question is, how do bears know when it's time to hibernate? Great question, Phoebe. And to answer it, 10-year-old Xavier from Edmonton, Canada, had a chance to speak with Sarah Wilbur. She's a biology graduate student studying hibernation physiology at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. And what she has to say is definitely, uh, what's the opposite of a lullaby? Um, a lullaby? Right. What she had to say about hibernation is definitely a lullaby. Here's Sarah and Xavier. He's super curious and had a lot of questions for her. I've never actually talked to a scientist. Really? Oh, well, I'm just a normal person. (laughs) Well, you still know a lot more than me. I've lived a little longer than you have, so I have that on my side. Why do animals hibernate? That's a great question. So all sorts of animals hibernate. But I focus mostly on mammalian hibernators, so mammals. But I actually mostly focus on an animal called the Arctic ground squirrel. So animals hibernate in the face of um, lack of resources. For instance, in the winter when there isn't things for the hibernator to eat, it saves energy by kind of shutting down for the season, often in the winter. Do animals in warm climates hibernate? Also a really great question. So I think we often think about hibernation as a strategy that animals use to survive in the face of cold temperatures, but animals in warm temperatures or warm climates also hibernate. So the formal term for this is estivation, and that's kind of like a summer hibernation where they would just overheat if they were running around. So they actually kind of undergo this hibernation in the face of really warm temperatures instead of cold temperatures, and then they're they're running around and being active when the temperature is a little cooler outside. How long do animals hibernate? So animals like this species I study, Arctic ground squirrels, will hibernate from anywhere from seven to eight months out of the year. 
Then there are some animals, like say a hamster, that go through really short hibernation periods. So maybe they'll only hibernate for three days, and then they'll come up and start feeding again. One species, actually, the edible dormouse, hibernates for 11 months out of the year, wow. which is pretty incredible. Another、um, species that we're very familiar with as a hibernator is bears. So, bears also have really long hibernation periods. They're probably my favorite hibernating animal. Yeah, they're, they're pretty amazing.、Um, and I don't know if you knew this, Xavier, but there's actually a big difference between hibernation in ground squirrels and hibernation in bears. So, ground squirrels, they actually drop their body temperature down to be the same as the outside temperature.、Really? So, if the outside temperature is five degrees, the squirrel will drop its body temperature to five degrees. But even more amazing is even though it's below the freezing point of water, it actually isn't frozen solid. Like you'd think it would be. So it's actually super cooled. So this means that it's below the freezing point of water, but it isn't in a solid form. And then the black bear or any kind of bear that hibernates will drop its body temperature just maybe five degrees or so. So it is a little colder, but it actually maintains a really high body temperature while it's hibernating. That's really cool. I think so too. A hibernator, like an Arctic ground squirrel, in the summer has a really strong circadian rhythm. So it Exits its burrow at about the same time every day, goes back into its burrow. And what we're finding now is during hibernation, the circadian rhythm actually shuts off. And what is directing the length of hibernation when the animal comes out again is actually called a circannual cycle, which you can probably guess is yearly. So it's on a yearly cycle rather than a daily cycle. With the changing photo period throughout the summer, when the squirrel is actually above ground and is exposed to the sun, There might be something during that phase that cues in the circannual cycle, but really, we don't really know what kind of encourages an animal to come out of hibernation or how it knows the exact time to come up. Because if it came up in January, there wouldn't be any food. So, how does it know to come up in April when things start to melt and food starts to become available? Maybe they can feel warmth. In the case of an Arctic ground squirrel, again, its burrow is actually frozen even after the babies are born. So nothing's really happening that's, that we've found so far that's encouraging them to come out of hibernation. It's kind of a mystery we don't know. That was biologist Sarah Wilbur speaking with Brains On listener Xavier from Edmonton, Canada. So, we just heard all about nocturnal animals and their days at、um, night. But it's not just animals living in cycles of light and dark. To learn more, we've booked an interview with. It just says plant? Not just any plant. It is me, Arabidopsis, everyone's favorite member of the Brassicacea family. Oh, I didn't see you there. Hi. Hi, new best friends. So excited to meet you. I will talk about anything. Want my thoughts on the stock market? Invest in kale. Grooming tips? Try pruning shears instead of hedge clippers. What car do I recommend? Anything but a lemon. Come on, ask away. Actually, we do want to know more about your circadian rhythm. Oh, sure. I can talk about that. I have actually been in scientific studies. In fact, let me call my other best friend, Janet Bram. She is a scientist at Rice University and wrote a whole paper on me. Hi, Janet Bram. Hey, Rabbitopsis. I haven't heard from you in a long time. How's it going? Great, great. Hey, so remember when we did that study on my circadian rhythm? Molly and Annika want to know more about it. Tell them about how we plants have cycles too. Sure, I'd love to help. Turns out that plants clearly know what time of day it is every day. 
They also know what the season is. So they're sometimes much more aware of their environment than than we are, I think, sometimes. Yeah. You know how sunflowers open in the day and close at night like clockwork? And sunflowers, they not only turn toward the sun during the day, they turn east at night just to be ready to soak up rays when the sun rises. How cool is that? Very cool. But what about you? What's neat about your circadian cycle? Oh, I am all about defense. Tell them, BFF Janet Bram. (laughs) Correct, right. So what plants do to defend themselves against insects is they make certain chemicals within their leaves or their tissues, and when the insects chew on them, these chemicals get into the insects, the insects get sick, and then they stop eating them. So what we found was that plants make these chemicals at the time of day when the insects are most likely to feed. So in this way, they prepare this defense just in case the insects attack them that particular day. Take that, buggos. Yeah, I had a conversation with my son about this, and he said to me something like, well, I know what time of day I'm going to eat my vegetables. That got me thinking, right? He, he kind of put himself in the place of an insect, thinking that, you know, there's a good time of day to eat these plants, and there's a bad time of day to eat these plants. And so that made me realize that Arabidopsis, being related to things like cabbage and broccoli and cauliflower, that if Arabidopsis were doing this on a daily basis where it was accumulating these anti-insect chemicals at particular times of day, that maybe the crops that we eat were similarly accumulating different kinds of chemicals at different times of day. And that could affect the people that eat these vegetables. Wait. Are you plants trying to make us eat insect poison? No, no way. Veggies love being in salads. For us, it's like performance art. Besides, my insect repellent doesn't hurt humans. In fact, it's awesome for you. Exactly. What we know is that these same chemicals that make insects sick are actually among the most potent natural anti-cancer chemicals known. So one of the reasons we are told to eat things like cabbage and broccoli and cauliflower is because of these particular chemicals. So if plants like you are flooded with these anti-cancer chemicals at certain times of the day, should we be eating you then to get the most out of our meal? Bingo! That is what Janet Bram and I think based on all of my, I mean, her research. I fill up with those chemicals in the middle of the day, but then I have less at night. So you are better off eating salad for lunch than you are having us as a midnight snack. Who eats salad at midnight anyway? Right. (laughs) But get this. Janet Bram and I also learned that even after you pick us from the ground, us vegetables still follow our circadian clocks. What we found is that if we store our harvested vegetables in light-dark cycles like they would find out in the natural environment, They do last longer, they seem to stay fresh longer, and some of those nutrients stay at higher levels longer than if you were to store them, for example, in a dark place or a place that had around-the-clock light. So maybe the fridge of the future will have a light and dark mode to keep plants like you healthy longer. Maybe. Obviously a good place for more research. Anyway, I hope that answers your questions. Oh, yeah. You were a big help. Thanks. And thanks to you, bestest friend Janet Bram. Talk to you later. Okay, see you later. Have to have you over for dinner sometime. Sure. I'll bring the salad. Bye. 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 That was different. 
Who knew plants were so chatty? Yeah, I'll never see a salad quite the same way again. Okay, Annika, I hope your ears are awake because it's time for the... Are you ready to test your ears, Annika? Yes. Okay, here it is. Any guesses? Um, maybe it's a type of bird or animal, like tweeting? Mm-hmm. That's an excellent guess. I'm going to let you ruminate on the answer for just a bit, and we'll be back later in the show to reveal the answer. Brains On is powered by you, our listeners. And right now, we're really looking for mystery sounds for an upcoming all-mystery sound episode. You'd be surprised at the fantastic sounds that are around you every day. Plus, sending in a mystery sound is a surefire way to get on the Brains Honor Roll. If you're not the sound-gathering type, you could also draw a picture inspired by one of our episodes or write to us with whatever you're curious about. That's what Juliet from Portland, Oregon did. Hi, I'm wondering why does my dad snore? Thank you. We'll answer that question and hear the latest group of Brains Honor Rollies at the end of today's show. Stick around. You're listening to a special episode of Brains On. I'm Annika Rader. And I'm Molly Bloom. Today is the second part of our look at circadian rhythm. And before the sun sets on this episode, let's check back in on the very important mystery sound. Okay, do you have a new guess? Um, I still think it's a bird, but maybe it could be like a seal or like an otter or something like that. So you think it's an animal. What kind of bird do you think it might be? Maybe an owl? Hmm, excellent guess. Well, the answer is an eastern screech owl. So you are 100% correct. Have you heard an owl before? (laughs) Um, I actually haven't heard an owl before, but yesterday we went on a field trip and saw owls. Well, this is perfect timing then. And did you talk yesterday on your field trip about how owls are nocturnal? Well, actually I did to my friend who thought the owls were awake the whole entire day. But for some reason, those owls were awake. They were pretty creepy. (laughs) Well, yes, you you are right. Owls are nocturnal, which means that it's active when the rest of us are sleeping. Brains On reporter John Lambert is here to shed some light on these creatures of the night. Nocturnal animals are not like you and me. We're diurnal, which means we're awake during the day. Instead of getting sleepy when the sun goes down, nocturnal animals are just getting up. (laughs) Biologists think that diurnal and nocturnal clocks pretty much tick the same. But how these animals respond to that clock is flipped. So when the internal clock says that the sun is setting, nocturnal animals wake up instead of going to sleep. So we know animals can change how they listen to their internal clocks to be active at night. But why be nocturnal at all? I mean, nighttime is dark, cold, and scary. 
Some Brains On listeners had similar questions. Hi, I'm Eli Fry from Laguna Niguel, California. My question is, why do nocturnals stay up at night? The answer to this question comes down to survival. Animals need resources like food and water, and resources can be hard to come by. So, animals tend to live in environments where they're experts at finding those resources. For example, camels are experts in arid deserts, and toads are experts in damp ponds. Animals evolve different traits to be able to live in different environments. A camel wouldn't need to store water if it lived in the swampy home of the toad, and that toad wouldn't find much use for swimming in the sandy desert. You can use this same idea when it comes to nocturnal and diurnal animals. Day and night are just two different environments. Just like animals adapt to a specific environment, animals can adapt to a specific time of day, too. If you can manage to get around during the nighttime, you can have access to all kinds of resources without having to compete with all those pesky day-dwelling animals. For example, think about all the mosquitoes and other insects flitting about at night. All this food is unavailable to diurnal animals, but bats can gobble them all up because they're nocturnal. Another mode of survival? Don't get eaten. Some animals are nocturnal to avoid diurnal predators. This is what scientists think happened with our early mammalian ancestors. Mammals came onto the scene during the reign of the dinosaurs, more than 200 million years ago. While the sun was out, pterodactyls as big as a giraffe ruled the skies, and dinosaurs like T-Rex were experts at stomping and chomping on land, making it a dangerous world for little creatures. But our furry little ancestors could avoid all this trouble by laying low during the day and waking up at night to safely search for food while the dinos dozed. This idea is known as the nocturnal bottleneck hypothesis, that our mammalian ancestors survived during the Mesozoic because they were nocturnal. They only became diurnal when dinosaurs went extinct. Since all mammals around today descended from these early nocturnal mammals, some of their traits have stayed with us. In fact, 70% of mammals are still nocturnal, and just about all, except for monkeys and apes like us, have eyes that still look a lot like nocturnal eyes, even if they're used during the day. Speaking of eyes, Monroe from San Mateo, California, wrote in with this question. How do nocturnal animals see in the dark? That's a great question, because moonless nights can be 100 million times darker than daylight. To answer this question, first we need to talk about how eyes work in the first place. Light enters our eye through our pupils and hits photoreceptor cells. These photoreceptors convert this light into electrical impulses which travel to the brain to make a mental image. If you want to get the nitty-gritty details, check out our episode on cats. Meow. At night, animals need to make the most of the little light that's out there. One strategy, have big eyes. The bigger the eye, the more light it can catch. Take owl eyes. If owls were as big as humans, their eyes would be the size of softballs. Except their eyes aren't round like ours. They're shaped more like tubes, so they'd be tubular softballs. This shape helps animals like the owl maximize depth perception at night so they can spot a mouse scurrying in the snow a hundred yards away. Hoot hoot! I see you there, mousey! You can't hide! Whoa! That owl came out of nowhere! The downside of these tubular eyes is that they can't look from side to side. Hence, a super flexible neck that can rotate 270 degrees around. No mouse can escape my gaze! Jeez Louise, take it easy, Mr. Owl. Some animals just have lots of little eyes pooled together. 
These are called compound eyes and are really common in insects. The nocturnal dung beetle uses its compound eyes to find piles of dung using only the light from the stars. Oh, look, here's one now. Got a fine dung, roll dung in a ball, fine dung ball hideout, enjoy delicious, delectable dung ball. Whenever light hits one of these little eyes, a bunch of the surrounding eyes get activated too. This means that they can get a rough image with less light. So dung beetles don't see a bunch of individual stars like we do, but bigger blobs of star instead. They use this stellar map to find their way to the safest spot to, well... Side note, never accept a dinner invitation from a dung beetle. Ugh. Some animals slow things down so they can see at night. Remember our toad friend? It has slow eyes that collect light for a couple of seconds before telling the toad's brain what they see. This literally allows more light to be shed on the scene, painting a brighter picture despite the darkness. That's a pretty amazing system there, Mr. Toad. The only downside is it's harder for me to keep track of fast-moving things. But that's okay. Life at my speed is pretty chill. So, as long as an animal has the right tools, nighttime can be the right time. Brains on reporter, John Lambert. Quite illuminating. Here at Brains On, we know you're curious and have lots of questions. Questions even the smartest people you know might not have the answers to. Is there a plant that you think we should interview? How about a question only an astronaut can answer? Or maybe there's a mystery sound you want us to guess. Email us at hello at brainson.org to help you track down answers. And maybe, just maybe, find some new questions along the way. Plants and animals react to cycles of the sun just like us. Animals hibernate to conserve energy when resources like food are scarce. And plants use circadian rhythms to follow the sun and even help protect them from predators. If you have more questions about sleep, like why do we even do it? Or what's going on in our brains when we doze? Check out the latest two episodes from our pals at the podcast, But Why. They'll explain how sleep helps us grow and why we sometimes do that weird twitch thing just before we drift off. Listen to But Why wherever you get your podcasts. That's it for this episode of Brains On. Brains On is produced by Mark Sanchez, Sandin Tawin, and Molly Bloom. We had production help this week from John Lambert, Emily Allen, Lauren D., and Emily Bright. Our engineers were Michael Osborne, Corey Shreppel, Johnny Vince Evans, Stell Klein, and Mark Schultz. Many thanks to Eric Ringham, Gwen Holdman, Lindsay Henning, Tracy Mumford, Dr. Alone Avidan, Roe Maor, Stacey Meisen, Karina Rader, Nathan Rader, Carl Reichert, and Tara Whittafield. You can find more episodes of Brains On at brainson.org or wherever you get your podcasts. We're also on Instagram and Twitter, we're brains underscore on, and we're on Facebook too. If you have any question you'd like to hear answered on Brains On, email it to us anytime. The email address is hello at brainson.org. Your curiosity fuels our show. Before we go, it's time for the moment of um. I'm wondering why does my dad snore? Thank you. 
first of all, um, to answer why we snore when we are asleep, um, I should start with what happens when we're awake. My name is Dr. Whaley Gray, and I am a sleep medicine physician who works in Newport, Vermont. So why do we snore? So when, when we're awake, our muscles are nice and firm and we don't make any sounds when we're breathing, unless, you know, we're sick, but usually we don't make any sounds. And the, the air moves to the nose and the mouth, and it goes down to the throat, and it goes all the way down to the windpipe and back to the lungs and then back up. However, when we fall asleep, all the muscles in our body relax, including the muscles in your throat and your neck. So once those muscles relax, they get very floppy and they expand, and now there's not as much room for the air to move in and out and when the air is moving it gets turbulence and it makes vibration and so that's what the snoring sound is from so snoring in itself is not bad but the problem occurs when the muscles get so floppy that um, they essentially block the airway so that air can't move in and out and then we have something called sleep apnea which essentially means um, that the person has stopped breathing in their sleep. The brain actually is pretty smart. When it senses that the airway is blocked and the person has stopped breathing in their sleep, it gets into a panic mode. Eventually, it will wake the person up. And this may only be for, you know, 10 seconds or a very short period of time, and the person may not remember it. But see, once we're awake, we go back to that normal breathing again. The muscles firm up, and now um, the person's able to breathe again. They will go back to sleep because, you know, we all get very sleepy at night, and we all have a need for sleep. Um, um, um... I'm wide awake and ready to recite this list of names. It's time for the Brains Honor Roll, the amazing listeners who keep this show fueled with their ideas, questions, and mystery sounds. Here they are. Nicolas from Los Angeles, Nina from Tempe, Arizona, Rose from Nashville, Drew from Ann Arbor, Michigan, Zaya from Phoenix, Laura from Austin, Texas, Julia from Atlanta, Desmond from Maui, Hawaii, Malena from Annandale, Virginia, Beatrix from Salem, Oregon, Eli from Haddonfield, New Jersey, May, Oscar, and Hugo from Kansas City, Oliver from Snohomish, Washington, Jem and Evie from Melbourne, Australia, Olivia from Duluth, Minnesota, Cameron from New Jersey, Natalie from Snohomish, Washington, David from New Haven, Connecticut, Kylie and Kelsey from Gilbert, Arizona, Joseph and Julian from Oak Park, Illinois, Henry from Brookline, Massachusetts, Rachel, Aaron, and Ryan from Oswego, Illinois, Yael from Boston, Natalie and Sophie from Huntington Beach, California, Miriam, Nora, and Violet from Oklahoma City, Sophia from Wisconsin, Benny from Irvine, California, Augie from Alberta, Wally and Ruth from St. Louis, Sylvie from Missoula, Montana, Tej and Anushna from Kathmandu, Nepal, Brixton from Midwest City, Oklahoma, Conrad from Seattle, Rena from Monument, Colorado, Niccolo from West Sacramento, California, Eleanor from Menominee, Wisconsin, Molly from Panama City, Florida, Layla from Durham, Maine, James from Burbank, California, Luke and Hannah from Ladera Ranch, California, George and Henry from Alexandria, Virginia, Leah and Kira from Laguna Beach, California, Aransa and Daniel from New York City, and Lena from Santa Rosa, California. Brains On is supported in part by a grant from the National Science Foundation. We'll be back soon with more answers to your questions. Thanks for listening.